It Happened to Me, a rare disease and medical challenges podcast. The mission of our podcast is to support you, our listeners, and to create community as you confront the toughest challenges in life. All of us will experience health hardships. The real question is, how do we adapt? That's the focus of It Happened to Me. We help you overcome limitations and live a full and satisfying life. Drawing on their own health challenges, hosts Kathy Gillenhorn and Beth Glassman interview guests who share stories and research to help you succeed in the face of difficult health obstacles. It happened to me. I'm not alone. And neither are you. I'm Kathy, and I'd like to welcome Dr. Sarah Gladstone to It Happened to Me. Today, we're going to talk about Wolfram syndrome a rare recessive genetic condition. Wolfram is difficult to diagnose, but symptoms include diabetes, optic atrophy, vision loss, deafness, loss of taste and smell, and urinary and bladder dysfunction. I was recently diagnosed with a variant of this neurodegenerative syndrome myself. Over to you, Beth. Thank you, Kathy, and welcome, Dr. Gladstone. Let's discuss this rare disease from your perspective as a pediatrician and the parent of a child with Wolfram syndrome. We'll explore your decision to take a sabbatical from work in order to be a full-time mom, to establish Unravel Wolfram Syndrome Fund at Washington University in St. Louis, to set up the Global Registry at the Snow Foundation, and to serve as a parent advisory board member at the Snow Foundation. My goodness, you are busy, Dr. Gladstone. Let's, tar- let's start with the basics, Dr. Gladstone. Would you describe Wolfram syndrome? That's a great question. And it's a, it ends up being a broader question than it was thought to be a number of years ago. So the classic form of Wolfram syndrome typically has its onset around age six or so when children are diagnosed with what appears to be type one diabetes. Uh, And then that classic form of Wolfram syndrome, the type one diabetes progresses and ultimately children are found to have some vision difficulties and optic nerve atrophy is ultimately diagnosed. In the classic form, people typically are losing their vision by age 18 and During that time, there can be any number of other symptoms, including bowel and bladder dysfunction, autonomic nervous system dysfunction, difficulty with smell, taste, and other neurodegenerative symptoms, difficulty swallowing, things like that. So this is the classic form. What was figured out maybe five or six years ago was that there is a spectrum of Wolfram syndrome. And I know when my daughter was diagnosed, it was just it was just a thought that there might be more to this than originally was thought, that this was a broader spectrum of disease. And indeed, it looks like there are some mutations that cause milder disease with a later onset of symptoms or a different variation on the theme as far as symptoms are concerned. So some people who are only diagnosed with diabetes some people may only be diagnosed with optic nerve atrophy and so on. So it sounds like this is a difficult syndrome to diagnose. And I wonder, doctor, are in medical school, are you taught genetics? 
So back in my day, when I was in medical school about 25 years ago, 26 years ago, there wasn't much to genetics at that time. Uh, I think if there had been more, I would have really enjoyed it. We learned the very basics, but there just wasn't much going on in that field that we could use as medical students. Uh, there was a lot brewing, uh, but it, it's nothing close to what it is nowadays. The idea of sequencing the entire human genome was uh, just amazing to us. So we weren't taught a lot about it then. And it's funny you ask that because when my daughter was diagnosed, I realized I had to go back and do what I would call a, a forced march fellowship in some sense. My, uh, my home fellowship in genetics to try to figure out what in the world was going on. Well, I can imagine that's true. And I wonder, do they teach rare diseases in medical school? We had, where I went to medical school, they actually focused a lot on listening to patients and thinking about what might be going on that's not common. And then where I did my residency, I would say it was where we saw many, many what we would call zebras instead of horses. So rare diseases, unusual presentations of disease. Uh, so I got uh, taught to look for the unlikely, maybe to a fault at times. <laughs> and I was always suspicious there might be something rare going on with somebody when it was really straightforward. But in some ways that really helped me as we can, we'll find out later, I'm sure. But um, we learned in residency more about rare disease by taking care of children who had rare diseases. So there were some that I learned about. I will say that I, I don't know that I ever learned about Wolfram syndrome. I was going to ask you that exact question. Had you ever heard of Wolfram's before your daughter's diagnosis? We found ourselves on the phone with the specialist who made the diagnosis through genetic testing, looking up what is Wolfram syndrome on the internet. As we're on the phone, my husband and I were on the phone and then we had the other phone looking up, what in the world? And so we got this classic description, which at first was really shocking to us sitting there. And pretty quickly, we both, my husband's a physician as well, and we both sat there thinking, well, clearly there's more to this because our child was 11 at the time and did not have full-blown diabetes, really wasn't technically diabetic in any sense other than very mild blood sugar elevation. She was asymptomatic at the time she was diagnosed. Um, very interesting. Uh, Dr. Gladstone, can you take us on your Wolfram journey? Um, when your daughter was diagnosed, what were her symptoms? So she really had none. Um, I'll back up just a little bit. A year and a half before that, when she was nine, we figured out she had some mildly elevated blood sugars by accident in my office. Um, we'd done a urine sample. I, I suspected she had a UTI and we found trace sugar in the urine and we see that all the time in pediatrics. But I thought, well, we're here. We'll go ahead and do a finger stick. And her blood sugar was elevated, about 180. And I thought, well, that's odd. And the next morning we did a fasting blood sugar that was diagnostic of diabetes. It was 130 something and 126 is the upper limit of normal. So I thought, well, that's really strange. <laughs> she had no symptoms and we assumed, well, she's a type one diabetic that we picked up on by accident. Um, but then we did the rest of the blood work and she had no antibodies, to no uh, pancreatic antibodies. There's a panel that you can send. She was making lots of insulin at the time that the blood work was done, which just doesn't go along with type one. 
And she really didn't fit the typical appearance of somebody with type 2 diabetes or the typical history. Um, so pretty quickly, when that blood work came back, we realized there was something different going on. Uh, and I reached out to a lot of friends uh, in the medical world to say, what do you think? And I ended up contacting a group in Chicago at the University of Chicago, the Kovler Diabetes Center. And they were fantastic and helped me sift through what could be causing it. We pretty quickly thought, well, this could be some form of genetic diabetes, or it could be a really rare presentation of a type 1 diabetic. I'll fast forward through all of that. <laughs> that was a long, a long year and a half, but they ended up having a grant to do genetic testing, and they sent off a panel. And when Ellen had just turned 11, uh, we were given the diagnosis of Wolfram syndrome. So when they um, when they got the grant for, when you got the grant for genetic testing, were they testing for genetic diabetes or for rare diseases? It was sort of what we call a shotgun approach, where they did a panel looking for all different types of genetic defects that can cause or, or mutations that can cause diabetes. So it was just a, a way to look at what could be going on based on what we knew from a genetic standpoint in the general population. Hmm. And is there any family history of Wolfram? So that's where it gets really odd. My mother's side of the family has an extensive history of some form of diabetes that looks like it's probably type two, but it's not classic. Uh, but this mutation came from my father's side. And there is no history on my father's side of Wolfram syndrome or diabetes or optic nerve atrophy or any of this. Huh. Well, I thought that both parents had to be caring in order for it to pass down. That's right. So my husband, he carries the other mutation. And his family, his family has no history at all either of, uh, well, now we start to wonder about some really subtle things, but no history of diabetes, um, no history of optic nerve atrophy. So we each carry a single mutation and apparently in the family, anybody prior to us carried a single mutation. Well, in many ways, you're very lucky that they were able to come up with the diagnosis of Wolfram because that's in many ways a medical mystery. Exactly. And to have her be asymptomatic, she was on a self-imposed low-carb diet at the time. She didn't want needles, terrified of needles, and wanted to just manage blood sugars with a low-carb diet. Uh, and we would check a couple blood sugars a week, and we left it at that. But um, I had stopped work about five weeks before we got the diagnosis. And it, that's right, it was before we got the diagnosis because I knew something was going on, obviously, with our daughter. And my husband had recently been diagnosed with true uh, celiac disease. And the medical care at home and the medical mysteries were making me a little overworked. <laughs> so well, this sounds like a, a good, break. good role for a genetic counselor. It, it, so I assume <laughs> you and your husband went to a genetic counselor after this diagnosis. <laughs> You know, we didn't because the two were actually unrelated. Um, celiac disease is uh, not not wholly, well, we assume it's genetic to some degree, but it's genetic in the spectrum of autoimmune disease. And we know uh, one of my husband's parents has some autoimmune issues, so we knew where that came from. We blamed him when we first thought my daughter had regular diabetes because type 1 diabetes 
and celiac disease can go hand in hand. <laughs> so we put it all on his shoulders. <laughs> so you get this diagnosis of Wolfram from your daughter. And I wonder how both you and your husband cope with this news. That is a great, great question. So um, we were walking in to have dinner with the entire family at that moment and extended family uh, at my in-law's house. So in that moment, we said to each other in the car, we're not going to talk about this right now. We, we didn't know what to do with the information. And it certainly wasn't information that we could discuss with our child because we didn't know what it meant, but we knew something wasn't classic. Um, so we, we went in and had dinner and my mother-in-law could tell something was wrong. And we said, we'll talk about it later. And that night we were packing to go to my sister's wedding the next day in Boston. <laughs> and uh, we were packing and I was, I was pretty distressed. And my husband put his hands on my shoulders and said, we've been through worse. She's fine today. She'll be fine tomorrow. And she'll probably be just fine next week. And we're going to figure out the rest of it. I think that might be verbatim what he said. And when he said we've been through worse, just as an aside, our first baby was born at full term, but died at the time of delivery. And so that was uh, 18 and a half years ago. But when he said we've been through worse, I would say I agree with that. <laughs> we had been through worse. And he just said, you know, we have time to figure this out and to understand it. And... I said, yeah, we do. This isn't a sudden, it's all over. This is, well, here's the first day of the rest of your lives. So let's go. So you know, we Dr. Gladstone, I, I really to, have oh. a great deal of empathy uh, for what you're going through. I, I'll share with you that my daughter was diagnosed with um, an autoimmune disease at a very early age. And going through this process with your child, it's, it's a difficult one, and um, so I, I have great compassion for what you're doing, and um, I wonder, I felt um, some guilt. I wonder if you could comment on that, having passed on. I know we pass on great things to our children, but um, yeah. having a child that is, is ill, um, I did feel that, and I wonder if you felt the same. That's a really good question. I don't know that I would ever say I have felt guilt about the mutation itself. In some ways, because my mutation is, is a mild one and the combination of my husband's and mine together creates a relatively mild form of Wolfram syndrome compared to others. In some ways we feel grateful that what we passed on was a milder form. I think also, and I've told my children this a lot, but for us, having lost our first baby at full term at the hospital and not going home with that baby, for, the, for our subsequent children, you know, in some ways we just said to ourselves, we just want to get one home. And so we even talked a little bit about, well, what if our child had a genetic disease or any problems? We said, well... We'd, we'd cope with that. So in, in some ways, this came to pass. I mean, it did come to pass. And we just said, well, we, we were all in. All, all we really wanted was to be able to take our child home. And we'd figure out the rest as we went. And we've told our kids, 
along those lines, they fulfilled all of our hopes and dreams when they got home from the hospital. So that takes the pressure off of them. They have nothing else they have to achieve. Uh, and I think that set them up for uh, a life of feeling like, okay, all right, so now it's my turn to live my life. I'm not doing this for my parents. So all in all, I think it made a low guilt situation for us that, yeah, she's got these two mutations, but there were never any promises that she wouldn't. <laughs> you know, no one ever promised us great health for any of us or our kids. So that might also be what made us kind of jump in and say, well, okay, now it's our turn to fix it. I don't know that I felt I had a guilt responsibility to fix it, but more that if I had the ability, I better do it. <laughs> What a beautiful, beautiful perspective that is on wonderful message. It took some growing into. I won't say that hit us overnight. You know, it took years for us to really, really understand that. But yeah, that's kind of where we are. But I'd like to jump in on the your fix it notion because I know that's very much who you are. And you and your family established the Unravel Wolfram Fund at Washington University. Tell us how and why you created the fund and the mission of the fund. The first thing we really thought about when we jumped into this, well, one was understanding the disease because there was very little literature about it. Um, and so that was a tough project. But then it was to figure out who was working on fixing it and raise money to raise funds. And I didn't know anything about any of it. So we had to jump in in all of the areas at once. Um, I met with a good friend of ours here in Kansas City, whose children go to school with my children. And he works at, one of, at, at a major research institute here in Kansas City. Uh, he, When he found out about the diagnosis, he suggested we get together and talk. And he has a remarkable background in research and the research world. And we came to the conclusion that not only did we need to raise money, but we really needed to work on organizing or helping to organize the research community and the clinical community to um, pull people together. In the rare disease world, everything is so spread out and very few people have the disease. And it's, it's imperative, <laughs> it is a must, that everybody be on board together. And one thing he told me was, no one person can be the center of the wheel, but you have to be at the center of the wheel together and then reach out to the hub. So in some ways where several of us can be in the center, or many of us can be in the center and on the outside of the hub at the same time, but it takes a group in the center to organize for fundraising, for research collaboration, for clinician recognition of the disease, for registering patients. And I ended up reaching out to several parents and saying, let's go. <laughs> and it just happened that one was a lawyer and one was a molecular biologist and one ran, already ran the big Wolfram Syndrome Foundation in the United States. So at that point, we all got on board together together 
It's, that, it's that, a that's the way it works. Yeah, it is. I know you also, though, work to organize and establish and create the Global Patient Registry at the Snow Foundation for Wolfram Research. And I'd love to hear what role the Global Registry plays in this whole picture. And for that, I have to give the majority of the credit to Stephanie Snow Gebel, who runs the Snow Foundation. That was her initial idea. She's been in this a lot longer than I have. Um, her, her daughter's older and was diagnosed younger than ours. And um, she, she really wanted to start a global registry. And I had talked about it with our friend here in Kansas City who said, that's a really important thing to do because then you have a list of patients who are ready for a trial. You have natural history data about the disease and you can have that ready to go for a pharmaceutical company or a researcher who needs it. And it, as a rare disease, disease, it makes you a lot more attractive, for lack of a better word, to um, pharmaceutical companies or researchers if they have an idea or a drug and you have the patience, you can cut down the timeline and the expense dramatically to take a treatment to the people. So through the National Organization of Rare Disorders, Stephanie Gebel reached out and she and I and another Wolfram mom named Pat Jabalisco got together and worked with NORD, um, National Organization of Rare Disorders, uh, on a platform they have to help people initiate a registry, patient registry for rare disease. And that was a process in itself, but we worked hard and... Uh, what, what's the difference between that global patient registry and the registry that researchers run themselves? That's a great question. So this registry belongs both to our patients and to the Snow Foundation in terms of um, we maintain the privacy, we maintain the platform with National Organization of Rare Disorders and with patient's consent, when they sign on, we can use that data privately without patients being um, identified in any way for a pharmaceutical company to better understand the disease and help uh, get a treatment to the people with the disease. We are also able to invite people to be part of a trial if they agree at the start of the, the registry when they sign on and they can change this at any time, but if they say they'd like to be part of a trial, if it comes up, then we notify them. So we have a ready-made ready, ready -made notification system. Um, because we are parents who have children with the disease, we're pretty well enmeshed in the community internationally. Um, again, for lack of a better word, but we, we know what's going on. We have families reaching out to us. We are reaching out to families clinicians are reaching out to us and we are reaching out to clinicians. So in some ways we're at one of, at the center of one of these wheels. It allows us to bring in patients from all over the world and those who may not be uh, in touch with a researcher. So how many patients are there in the Global Patient Registry? Right now we've had, I believe, 85 have signed on uh, and we're working to get that in the hundreds. It's slow going at first.
So we reach out through email, through social media. Um, there are very specific platforms that we are able to use because everything has to be regulated. Uh, but we're also able to reach out through clinicians um, and researchers to tell them the registry exists and then they can share that with their patients. Uh, one of our problems has been getting the registry translated into other languages that should be available this spring. So that will allow us to reach out to far more countries. Very, very, very great work. Um, tell us about your role, speaking of the Snow Foundation, as a parent advisor at the Snow Foundation. So that was something that Stephanie had asked if I'd be interested in. I said, absolutely. And it's really, um, it's a... It's a position where I, I help families who are in need of information, um, whether it's about possible treatment options or what have I experienced or um, if a child is in the hospital and they need help advising what treatments are, are known to likely be safe versus things that might not be safe. Um, I try not to give too much information in terms of a medical capacity, although I suppose I can do that, <laughs> um, but it's mostly based on other patient experience and things we might need to think about when initiating treatments based on the way the disease works. Um, and just being a support to other families if they're encountering a difficult time or they need advice, it's kind of whatever people need. Wonderful work you're doing. Wonderful. The association with other parents gives you a greater hope for a cure? It does. It does. Um, I think that, I think that there's a hopelessness that people have when they, when they have a rare disease in a family like this because they feel so isolated. And I do think that the more we have reached out, um, the more enthusiastic and energetic families have gotten about working on these projects, diving into a possible clinical trial or supporting the research. Uh, they're not alone. And the impossible is possible. I mean, it really, really is. When we got the phone call six years ago, we were told there's no treatment. And there was, and it was just symptomatic for the diabetes and there was no treatment. One of the other moms uh, who also runs a, a rare disease foundation, she's a molecular biologist, and I reached out to her, and we talked about potential treatments in the literature that are easy access at our fingertips, really. And just serendipitously, after emailing about a couple of options, I stumbled across a company in Cambridge, Massachusetts, very close to where I grew up, that was working with a similar drug. And I reached out to them for toxicity data. They were fascinated by this disease they'd never heard of. And I won't go into all the details, but one thing led to another. And within a couple of days, they had sent out a package of their drug to our Wolfram syndrome guru, as we call him, um, Fumi Urano at Washington University in St. Louis. And he initiated the preclinical data to find out if this drug would work for Wolfram syndrome. It does, and so the drug should go to trial for Wolfram syndrome any minute now. I, literally over the next few weeks, it should hopefully be in trial. We've been working on this for a little while. So over the over the course of five years. I know, he is a uh, yeah, real guru. Just thrilling. Just thrilling.
What wonderful news. And it was really serendipitous. That's it's one of our favorite words, is serendipity, because this these guys who who run this company, they're young, they're enthusiastic, they were so willing to help. Dr. Urano, so willing to help. Our fund, the Unravel Wolfram Syndrome Fund, goes directly to Dr. Urano's lab to fund the preclinical data, because it's it's not cheap <laughs> to get the preclinical data, unfortunately. Um, but he really dedicated uh, lab space to doing that. And it got more and more exciting as we found it looks like it's working. It looks like it helps. And so up until the time that we can get a genetic a gene therapy for the disease, we can help slow progression. So your story about this trial really highlights how bringing attention to a rare disease is crucial because you stumbled upon a lab that was doing research into a drug. You got that drug to Washington uh, University. And I'm wondering what other ways you can use to bring attention to this rare disease to really help as your, um, I, I would imagine the global registry is another. What other ways can you bring attention to a rare disease? And this is a great example. Your question brings up a great example of how working as a community or as a bunch of people around the conference table is so important. Uh, so different parents, different Wolfram Syndrome parents have come up with really great ideas. We have a mom in the UK who came up with the idea of a Wolfram Syndrome Global Awareness Day, which is October 1st. So we had our second annual Global Awareness Day last this past October. And for that, at this point, we've been sharing information through social media, um, on our public radio station. I placed a spot on the day um, to go several times a day. We sent out emails to clinicians about the disease to raise awareness. We put pop-ups on all of our different websites to let people know about Global Awareness Day. And so it just makes more and more people aware, clinicians aware, researchers aware, and raises support and fundraising for the research. Um, we meet with Wolfram Syndrome researchers as a group from time to time so that we have different groups working on different projects and not doing what we call in medicine, reinventing the wheel. If one group is working effectively on one aspect of treatment, we don't want all of them working on the same thing. <laughs> not to be not to be selfish or anything, but if one of them is working well on that, we would love for another group to work on gene therapy or a type of gene therapy. So we try to get everyone together to work on different ways of both collaborating and building on each other's research, but also um, not, not duplicating to the best of our ability. And these ideas have come from all different parents who are in all different lines of work. A father in Norway had some of these ideas and, and really is helpful in getting these researchers together. He's working with them pretty frequently. Um, Stephanie from the Snow Foundation does this. There's a, um, a Wolfram mom in France. All over the world, we have parents who get together at our virtual conference table and we talk about what do we need to do to better our chances of rapid progression to a treatment and to support our patients. I mean, that's, I guess that goes without saying that hasn't been as much my, uh, my role, but supporting our patient population and emotionally and physically when possible as a community. 
So getting back to your daughter, she was diagnosed, I believe, at nine. How old is she now? So she was diagnosed with some kind of diabetes, in quotes, at nine, and then Wolfram syndrome at 11, and she's 17. She's 17. And how is she doing yep. now? She's great. <laughs> um, so we definitely cope, she copes with diabetes on a daily basis. Um, but with Wolfram syndrome, people still have some pancreatic function. So some days um, her pancreas is more diabetic than others. <laughs> And when it, today is one of those days I'm looking right now at her blood sugar tracing, and it's low because apparently the beta cells are functioning today, and um, she's not needing as much insulin as she did yesterday. So it's very up and down, um, but you know she's got a really good sense of humor about it and calls it the diabetes diabetes platinum plus um, with lots of other things thrown in, but um, she's really coping well with it. I think as a teenager with a rare disease in the middle of a pandemic, the last couple of years have been challenging, but this kid has learned to be an unbelievable self-advocate, um, meeting with teachers when necessary, um, just doing whatever it takes to take care of herself and get things done that need to be done. And she just got accepted to college two weeks ago. Congratulations. Where's she going? <laughs> um, early, early decision to Bard, which has been her dream since eighth grade. <laughs> so, oh. oh, that's yeah. thrilling. So exciting. Congratulations. Thank now, you. Now, what's her prognosis? Is there one with such a rare disease? Yeah. So we, we don't know 100%. Right now we're going based on the the rate of progression so far and i will say that we've used um some basic treatments to try to slow progression based on what we know about the disease and what's available in the research um they're they're one of the drugs is a type 2 b type 2 diabetes drug that's fda approved and a couple of supplements that um you know aren't proven at well they're not proven proven at this point but look helpful and not hurtful so um, we have used some treatments, but progression has been very slow. Her vision is still intact with little to, little to no progression of optic nerve atrophy um, so far. So that's great. So if we can continue to slow this down with the new drug going into trial and with gene therapy, very much on the horizon, and that's a whole other story, but that's in the works Prognosis is really good for her, really good. That you know, living a full life should be should be very much on the horizon. There are some learning difficulties that can go along with Wolfram syndrome, some attentional difficulty, things like that. But she manages that really well and has learned um, really learned to evaluate herself and how she needs to cope with some of those things. So um, and is now really interested in neuroscience. That's <laughs> so. yeah, exciting. It sounds like she has the inner strength that you have. And you know, you've yeah. really uh, raised her well. And she, and she did that her way, not so much the puzzle solver, I guess, that I am, but more um, self-contemplating. What do I need? <laughs> and how can I make it happen? You know, so she's done a really, really good job of that. That's wonderful. 
And I just, is there any advice you'd recommend to our listeners today? Yeah, I would say you are not alone. You're not alone. Um, I've met parents with children who have a disease that's one in 50 in the world, one in 20 in the world known. Um, even if one's child's disease is so rare that there are no other known people nearby, there are people who can understand the basic disease mechanism and help. And it's really about bringing people to the conference table. You don't have to know the answers for yourself. This is a lesson I learned from my grandfather. Um, you bring the people to the conference table to get the job done. And you may not know much of anything about it, but if you have email and if you're willing to reach out, you'd be surprised how many people will answer. Oh, Dr. Gladstone, thank you so much for being here today and for highlighting the reason we named this podcast, It Happened to Me, I'm Not Alone, and Neither Are You. It's exactly that, to make people feel that they're not alone because we are all a community. And that's the point that uh, we do hope to make. But your story has just brought awareness to this rare disease, and it shows how taking action can really make a difference both for yourself, for your family, and for others. And thank you for who you are, what you do, and for being a guest on It Happened to Me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of It Happened to Me. We encourage you to learn more at ithappentomepod.com. That's ithappentomepod.com. Please use the contact forum on our website to submit your guest suggestions, comments, questions, ideas, and feedback for the show. You can also email us directly at ithappentomepod at gmail.com. Again, that's ithappentomepod at gmail.com. We would also really appreciate it if you can leave us a five-star rating review on your podcast app, probably Apple or Spotify. This helps others in the rare disease and medical challenges community find us. It Happened to Me is created and hosted by Kathy Gillenhorn and Beth Glassman. Steve Holsenbach is our media engineer and co-producer. Myself, Kier Deneen from DNA Today, is our marketing lead and co-producer. Ashlyn Anokian is our graphic designer. And remember, it happened to me. I'm not alone and neither are you.